I'm hoping that they find it useful the same way they seem to have found the first one. I'm How embarrassed. Order their the life. book actually hurts me. Actually, both of them hurt me, I would say, because I'm very hurt. I'm a very destroyed person in many ways. And so I feel unworthy. Unworthy of what? You name it. In the book, you encourage people to think from an evolutionary perspective, which I think is incredibly important. And I think what you offer people is one, you make, we all struggle with our own internal demons and you allow people to see how that's a heroic endeavor, maybe the ultimate heroic endeavor to conquer that inside of yourself. And then going back to the beginning of identity being a function of behavior by helping people begin to identify as the hero engaging in relatively straightforward behaviors like cleaning your room or like in the new book, making an area beautiful, um, refusing to give into resentment, aim at one thing, which fuck was one of my favorite parts of the book and see how extraordinarily good you can get at that. Like when I think you know, that's about some a good thing is you got to aim at something. It's like, otherwise your life is meaningless. Well, what should you aim at? Well, I don't know. Well, pick something, pick something. Aim at it. As you move toward it, you'll get wiser. Then maybe your aim will change. That's okay. But at least it'll change in an informed way. It's like discipline yourself in one dimension. See what happens. Well, that's exciting. And I think that's something that's open for everyone. You can do that. I shouldn't say that because I don't believe that. I think you can find yourself in a situation that's so dire that you don't, there's no escape from it. But that doesn't matter because this still, this is, the hero myth might not be, the best we have might not always work, but it's still the best we have. And the fact that it might not work doesn't mean we should throw it away. It's still the best we have. I mean, everyone dies and so we fail in some sense the fact that a symphony ends doesn't mean that it wasn't worth listening to. Yeah. When you put that in an evolutionary context and you acknowledge that people are compelled by biology to strive, they're compelled by biology to progress, they're compelled by biology to um, be courageous, that they will be rewarded for being courageous neurochemically. They will be punished for being a coward neurochemically. And... Yeah, well, think about, you know, the thing about that biological explanation, too, is that we've been social for a very long time. We've been social for so long that our social nature is programmed into our biology. And so you'll be punished if you're not useful to other people. Yes. By your conscience, because you're a social creature. And the question is, well, how could you be most? Here's another question that starts to what verge on the religious what does the most useful person look like? Well, who is everyone hoping they'll meet? And that's a genuine question. I'm like, and that's the ideal. The ideal is the person everyone's hoping they'll meet. That's Christ in, in the Christian culture, psychologically speaking, independent of any religious claims. So that's these 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 this is this is I suppose the essential idea of the archetype from the Jungian perspective, we have the, we have the image of an ideal. And because it is the ultimate ideal, it has a religious element, it's compelling. It's a judge. Why is it a judge? Well, if you fall short of the ideal, 
your conscience punishes you. So it's a judge. And it's merciful. Well, why? Because if you act out the ideal, then your life improves. You know, and I said, well, the question, what is the relationship between these images of the psyche and reality? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know where the archetype shades into reality. <laughs> it depends to some degree on how you define reality. And, you know, this is, I, I've been, people don't like that statement. But when, when you're asking questions that are deep enough, you start to have to ask, what do you mean by true, for example? What do you mean by real? Because the questions you ask get so deep that they're of the same kind as the question, what is real or what is true? You know, if, think of it this way, reality is what we adapt to by definition. That's reasonable. If you're a Darwinian, you have to say that's actually as far as you can go. Reality is that which shapes us. You can't get a better handle on reality than that. Well, when you make a picture of objective reality, it's not the same as that. It's a different picture. And it's not obvious which one should play Trump. Now, the hero myth, as far as I can tell, is an evolutionary artifact. And that means that for human beings, that the hero image is the path of, of optimal adaptation. Does that reflect reality? Well, it does insofar as reality has selected that. Well, does that mean that reality is a story? Because the hero myth is a story, or at least that's one of the things it is. Does it mean that reality has a narrative aspect? Well, it does insofar as we act things out. Does that mean that reality is ultimately a story? Well, I don't know. But the answer isn't obviously no. Yeah. Reading the book, Beyond Order, there was a part in there that struck me as this is going to be the new battleground that Jordan is going to be fighting on. Do, oh, you, have, good. <laughs> do you have a sense of... Um, what in the book is going to trigger people? No. I mean, I didn't think that the lobster example <laughs> in the last book was going to be so pilloried. I mean, I thought it was I thought it was really cool. It's like, oh my god, serotonin mediates dominance in lobsters and people. How ancient. How remarkable. But well, that took off in all sorts of directions, you know, and people made fun of it. It's like, well, you can make fun of 350 million years of evolutionary history if you want. You can put your social constructionism up against 350 million years of evolutionary history. Good luck to you. I didn't think it was like, and, you know, the idea that I was trying to insist that because lobsters live in hierarchies, that hierarchies are the source of all moral value. You know, that's. I was trying to insist that hierarchies are in, are so inevitable that you see nervous systems adapting to them across virtually every level of animal. And why? Well, because some things are valuable. And since and within any given domain of value, some valuable things are more valuable than other things. And so you have a hierarchy. There's no avoiding it as long as you need something, as long as there's scarcity. 
a hierarchy is inevitable. Yeah. Hi- you know, nobody cares how many big pens you have. It's because they're not scarce. So you can't have status because you have 200 of them. But as soon as there's scarcity, there's a hierarchy. And there's always scarcity of one form or another, no matter how rich you get. You know, if, you're, if you have $100 million, Picasso paintings are still scarce. Yeah, the, uh, the pushback on the, the lobster thing it falls into two things for me. One, I don't understand why people look for a reason not to listen to somebody, which to me, most of the people coming after you for that one, just they didn't want you to be right or to be heard. And so they went after something that they thought they could memify and, and shut down on. And then the well, other I one- I understand that. Like, I understand that. I, it's obvious why people are looking for a reason not to listen to someone. It's like, how goddamn many people can you listen to? There's 9 billion of them. You know, so you have to not listen to almost everyone. And so you'll fall for any excuse. And sometimes that's not so good, you know, because you have a bias that prejudices you against a viewpoint that you actually need. That's that's a problem. Mm. But the phenomenon itself, like, you know, you you mentioned, sorry to bring this up again, but because it's germane and, and relevant. Someone said something disparaging about me and they were on your staff. It's like, well, you have lots of options for guests you're looking for no you're always looking for no because you can only say yes to a very limited number of things mm-hmm. so that's another reason we have to be very careful about our prejudices because we need them you know to i don't mean prejudice in the obviously in the inappropriate social sense but jesus we have to shield ourselves from an excess of information we're very limited capacity processors. Mm, no question. The- I, I don't understand, though. I don't understand, really. And it's really killing me, I think. I might might mean that literally. I don't understand why I'm so controversial. I can't figure that out. It's very distressing to me. You want me to take a stab at it? Sure. Good metaphor. (laughs) All right. So my gut instinct in terms of why a certain type of person uh, responds negatively to you is when you think of a person as a blank slate and that we all have this collective responsibility to make sure that everybody ends up the same, then you saying some people are better at something than others already is feels judgmental and so it is it, it oh yes <laughs> it is for sure judgmental. and but when you have a collectivist view and you believe that everyone should have equal outcome which by the way i think everybody yourself included like if only right like that would be amazing like if everybody could live truly in harmony and that didn't violate principles of just the human animal which is why i always remind people to remember you're having a biological experience but you say things that are they violate a deeply compassionate person's desire to take care of everybody, the sort of no child left behind type thing. And when you insist on in your own life, like I'm only going to say that which is true and I'm certainly not going to let somebody force me to say something I don't believe is true. So now with that, and by the way, all of that, and this is a key thing I think you have to understand, 
you're fighting with a level of intensity that makes sense when you realize your obsession with what happened in the 20th century, the Gulag Archipelago, what happened there, uh, obviously Nazi Germany, Mao's China, like the number of people that have been killed in these essentially social experiments. So you have this deep, intense thing, trying to get people to understand, like hierarchies are real, there's no escaping them. Not everybody is as good as everybody else at everything. And by the way, you have to shoulder responsibility And that's where people are like, you just to them, I cannot. And before I say what they think, I will reiterate, you have changed my life forever and for the better. I will forever be grateful to the things that you continue to put out into the world. And I missed you horribly as a thought leader during 2020 of all years to be on a Jordan Peterson diet. I was not happy about that. But what they think of is that you're being mean for the sake of being mean, that you're not trying to help them see you cannot pretend reality isn't reality in pretending that the dragon is not there the dragon does not go away the dragon grows more powerful more likely to devour you and your family and so yeah, and i'm saying smaller but mm. they don't see that and so that's why i'm like when i see people attack you i'm like jesus christ how many times does he have to say this is about a balance between order and chaos that you need both of these things that You have to show the responsibility because that is what reality demands, that you're in, you're nested in an evolutionary context. There are things like hierarchies that will play out in, uh, in the, the body in perception. Exactly. And so you may not want to feel bad when you walk in the room and are worse at something than everybody else, but you're going to, you may not want to feel bad when you're rejected but you're going to. You may not want to feel bad because you're just lazing around your house and not doing anything, but you're going to. And you have peered into enough of human nature to recognize, hey, there are just certain truisms. You've now given us 24 of the, I forget how many were originally in the core article, 49 or whatever. So 42. 42, no. okay, we've got yes, 24. it's the answer to the life, the universe, and everything, right? Is that all, Douglas Jordan? Hofstadter's number. So, oh my God, that's perfect, actually. Uh, it, it is this incredible thing once you break free from ideology. And that's where, again, this is one of the rules in Beyond Order, not to fall prey to ideology. This is where I thought you were going in the beginning with identity. I thought you were going to say identity has become pathological because it has become, it's been simplified. You talk about this in Beyond Order. Once you simplify something, and this is how an ideologue gets you, they simplify it. They make it very understandable, becomes very clear who's in and who's out. You can reward and punish based on that. People are grabbing these unnegotiated, self-determined pieces of identity that don't necessarily bring value to the larger world, which will create dissonance in their own life because they've got all this substructure running, telling them to be valued. Well, they don't bring tradable value. You, You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not saying they're like, your race, I suppose, is a value. But it's not a tradable value and your gender and your sex, the same thing. It's like, I guess it's partly because there's no scarcity. (laughs) You know, it's like we've got enough white people. Being white doesn't buy you anything. So, and I'm not saying that with any pleasure. That's what I think people miss. This is why I think people come after you. They don't recognize that you're not saying it you're not relishing in this. You want people to be happy. And I, I, I'm always so confused. 
Jordan, I don't know why you remain as vulnerable and open as you are. After the time saying, I was like, what the fuck? You sounded so kind, open, compassionate after, what, four years of, you know, some percentage of the world relentlessly slandering you. And obviously you get people that cheer you on, probably way more people that cheer you on than don't. But you still remain vulnerable, which is fucking incredible. But the fact that they don't recognize that you're trying to help like I could get it if they said, Hey, look, I disagree with Maybe Jordan on this do. side or the other, but Maybe they do recognize that. You know, there's a lot of cynicism about the help. And I, I can't understand why you'd be cynical about help unless you weren't that help weren't that pleased about the idea of help. You know, like all these deplorables that I'm helping, these angry young men, you know, they don't deserve help. Well, I don't think that. I don't know anyone that doesn't deserve help. You know, th there's this idea in the New Testament that you should love your enemies. It's like, why would you do that? Well, it'd be better if they weren't your enemies. And their unnecessary suffering doesn't help. It's not helpful. It's not like you don't. You know, anyone with any sense, anyone who's human, is liable to take pleasure in vengeance or even in... But, you know, when people go after the journalists that have gone after me, I don't take any pleasure in that. Mm. I don't sit back at my home and rub my hands and think, you know, you got what was coming to you. I do think sometimes you got what was coming to you, but I think of that more like watching someone in the road you know, they're in the road and they have their back turned and a truck runs over them. It's like, well, you were in the road and there was a truck. And so you got what was coming to you because you were on the road and there was a truck. But right. I don't take any pleasure in it. I don't see that it's helpful. What do you want people to get out of Beyond Order? It It is extraordinarily well thought through. It is very well laid out. Each sentence stacks like a brick upon the next. I wouldn't advise, I don't know if you feel differently, but I wouldn't advise people read them out of order. It's literally this very careful case being made that taken in totality is breathtaking. I think you can read advice. them in either order. I think you can read them in either order. I tried, maybe maybe they're better read in order, but, but um, I think that if you read the second one first, then it would color your vision of the first one. I know? mean, I mean the, the rules. The, I think you're right. Twelve rules for life oh. and beyond order. It doesn't matter. They're yin and yang. Oh, you mean the rules themselves? The rules themselves. Just it, it stacks so yes. well. So well, otherwise, just... it wouldn't be a book. Hey, okay? I mean, each the thing about writing a book is that you're outside of time and space in relationship with the book because. Chapter one comes before chapter 12, but not when you're writing it. You can go back mm. and modify chapter one because of chapter 12. I did try to tie them together so that they make a book, you know, and they one builds upon another. That's like that's the musical element of it as well. The re recurrent themes. I'm glad you liked it. See, I can't tell. I can't evaluate it. Um, I'm hoping that it it's of the same level of quality that the first book was. And I'm not making any claims saying that about the level of quality of the first book. I'm just, that was as good as I could do. And I wrote the second one under unbelievable duress. Yeah. And so I can't tell if it's, you know, whether that was a 
cursor, well, it was certainly a curse, and no doubt about that. I don't know how it impacted the book, though. Mm. It's hard so to say what, what do it I want been... people to get out of it. Well, I'm hoping that they find it useful the same way they seem to have found the first one. I'm and embarrassed. How to order their the life. book actually hurts me. Actually, both of them hurt me, I would say, because I'm ashamed, you know, of what's happened to me. What do you mean? And their books about life and my life is, I'm very hurt. I'm a very destroyed person in many ways. And so I feel unworthy. Unworthy of what? Oh. You name it. I hope people find it useful, you know? I hope it alleviates some unnecessary suffering. That's George, the goal. Here's how and I read your books and everything that you've put out into the world. The people that should write the instruction manual are the people that have struggled. And in your suffering, you have been able to piece together useful information, which is the barometer by which I judge a book's value for sure. The reason people flock to your lectures, they buy your book, is you have made, in modern times, the single most coherent and useful instruction manual for life, period. So the I fear that the brokenness that you feel, the heartache that you feel translates into something usable that couldn't be written by somebody that hadn't gone through what you've gone through. Well, I would like to believe that was true. You know, there's a bit too much self-justification in it for my taste, but <laughs> I thought the other day I'd probably do this too. And I, I have to record an announcement for this book because it's coming out on Tuesday. I thought the best announcement would be just to thank people for all of their kind attention. I'm very fortunate in that regard. I get letters from people all the time that they open up their hearts. You know, it's really something. But I am somewhat nonplussed, let's say, for all this work. I'm pretty broken. In general or just in this moment? Don't know. I think in general. Man, well, I will say this as somebody whose life you have touched and the thing I want you to recognize in me as I imagine countless other people want you to recognize in them more than warm wishes is I have put to use the things that you're teaching and they have made my life better and they have made the lives of those around me better. And man, it is really heartbreaking to see you um, go through what you're going through now. And I, I certainly get it. Um, you know, and I don't know you well enough to offer you any sort of um, 
familial consolation. So I will just say that what you do matters probably more than you think it does, certainly as much as you think it does. And I, I had never met you through 2020. And I started reaching out to people that we both know, asking about you, because I, I believe that the world needs the insights that you uniquely have coming from your background of mythology and understanding what is deeply ingrained in the human psyche from an evolutionarily shaped perspective. And that nobody is putting it together the way that you're putting it together. And the fact that you've been, you know, I mean, hopefully it's, it's small in comparison to the people that are supporting you, but Jesus, like, I don't, I know I would not put up with the amount of shit that you've put up with. And the fact that I think the individual is the only way to approach any systemic problem. Like you just have to deal with the individuals and then from there it will echo out into society. And so the fact that that's your approach, um, I kept telling people we need Jordan Peterson right now. And I'm so grateful you're back. And I know this book will be, very successful because well, it's I'm useful. glad you liked it. I'm glad you liked it because, like I said, I it's really hard for me to evaluate it. You know, sometimes I, well, I have every possible thought that you could have about it. You know, <laughs> sometimes I read it and I think, oh, that seemed to have turned out pretty good. And other times I think, Jesus, I've said this 50 times already. And yeah, I, I'm all over the place. I can't, I think that happens. It happens when you write a book, you get so, because, you know, if when you read someone else's book, you can kind of tell if the ideas are original, at least insofar as you're concerned. Mm. Well, I can't tell because I, these are my ideas. Well, not all of them, obviously, but they're ideas I'm at least deeply familiar with. So I can't tell to what degree it's original. None of it. And so I and it's it's also I suppose I'm quite apprehensive about its release in some sense because I've set myself up an in, impossible second act. You know, because the first book was so insanely popular, I think it's six million copies now in in all the languages that it's been published in. So um, that's impossible. That never happens, right? It's it's certainly it's like winning the lottery. It's probably less probable than winning the lottery. In fact, I'm virtually certain that it's less probable than winning the lottery. And to to imagine doing that twice is that's just, it happens, but it's highly improbable. Anyways, it's going to all come. And then, uh, you know, I'm in a different space than I was when I released this first book. So this is compared to all, this is going to be compared to all my electronic avatars, which are busily working out there in the world. I think there's more of me outside of me now than there is inside of me, weirdly enough. That's another phenomena that I can't really get my hand, my, 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 uh, mind around, you know, the power of YouTube, Jesus, that's quite the technology. <laughs> when I put those first videos up, you know, I was, this was bothering me, this piece of legislation and for a variety of reasons, some of which we've discussed, I talked to my wife and my son sort of casually. I said, well, I'm going to make these videos, see what happens. And just like, Famous last words. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, man. Look, it's resonated. It will continue to resonate. You are you have an extraordinary ability to translate what people are feeling into the actions they need to take to get out of it. Uh, it is not a mistake that you are a very practiced clinical psychologist that is able to scale what you were doing one on one now to the many. It's extraordinary. And I think it's really had an impact on society. My fantasy I love is being a clinician. It was a great job. You know, I really loved it. There was nothing better than intense conversations about how to make things better when both partners in the conversation are fully committed to that. Mm. It's such fun to produce incremental improvement, sometimes more than incremental, you know, collaboratively. There's nothing better than that. I love doing my lecture tour because it was that on a large scale. It was. I talked to Dave Rubin about that this week because, of course, he was long on the tour. And it was such, it was so perfect to be talking to people about making things better and to have everyone, at least in that moment, fully on board with the idea. You couldn't, you couldn't ask for anything better than that. It was great. And to have the support I've had from people, it just stuns me. You know, I think it's actually traumatic to have that much support. That's interesting. Why traumatic? It's not easy to know what to do with, you know, the cheers of a million people. It's overwhelming. It's dangerous. Dangerous because it can seep well, into your identity or? This is probably not directly relevant, but I don't know. You know, I've thought a lot about Hitler. You know, was it his arrogance or his humility that led him to be the savior, so-called, of Germany? He had millions of people cheering for him. How could you not think you were right? How could you possibly think you weren't right? And so there's danger in that. You know, I don't think I've... I don't think I've unfairly benefited from it. Money, success, fame, all that stuff is irrelevant. What matters is how you think about yourself when you're by yourself. And I want to know what you think about in terms of self-identity, how we construct our sense of self, and then how we leverage that to move through the world in a way that makes sense. So... Identity to me is something that's practical. It's, it's, your identity is a, a, it's like a dramatic role that you play out in the world. And while playing that out, it has to furnish you with a life. And what that means is that it has to be, it means that it has to be negotiated with other people. And when you're a very young child and you first start to play with who you are, you live in a fantasy world, and according to some developmental psychologists, at least, particularly this is grounded in the theories of Piaget, that very young children, two or three, are quite egocentric in their play. They play according to their own rules. And so they're not social yet until they're three or four, um, which means that they have their own goals in mind, and then they erect a little fictional world around those goals, and then they play out the role within that fictional world, and that's pretend play. And when they get to be about three or four, and they start playing with other kids, they have to bring 
their worlds together and negotiate because both children have to want to play. And so that means identity has to expand beyond its egocentric focus and increasingly be negotiated in the social world. I studied developmental psychology for a long time, especially in, rela in relationship to the regulation of aggression. And most children learn to regulate their aggression between the ages of two and four. Now, for example, for, for instance, there's a subset of children, mostly male, who are very aggressive at the age of two, comparatively speaking. They bite, kick, fight, hit, and steal. That's the definition of, of aggressive. And almost all those children are socialized out of that by the time they're four, although a small proportion aren't, and they tend to be long-term antisocial children and then criminal adults. It's very, very difficult for that to be rectified if it isn't rectified by four, what happens with most children is they learn to move beyond their egocentric presuppositions and include other children in the play. And so they start to negotiate their roles. And identity is, a sophisticated identity is a negotiated role. And so it's not appropriate for negotiated anyone Negotiated with who? With everyone. With everyone. And of course, you know this is the case because if you, if you, well, first of all, if you're a child and you want friends, then you can't insist that only your game be played. So I'll give you an example. There, there's been observational studies of children in playgrounds. So imagine there's a group of children together. Let's say they're six or seven years old and they're playing helicopter. So they've got their erasers out and they're buzzing around in the helicopters. Okay, so they've already established the ground rules. There's, they've got together and they laid out the drama. They say, well, let's play helicopter. And maybe there's four or five suggestions, but the group, the group uh, um, develops a consensus that helicopter's the fun game. And let's make our erasers into helicopters. I don't have an eraser. Well, you can use your pencil and it can be a long helicopter. And so everybody gets a roll and everybody's happy about it. Otherwise, play won't continue, right? Everybody has to be happy or play won't continue. And so then the, the, the little drama organizes itself and the kids play helicopter and there's consequences of that that play out like a story. And then maybe another kid comes along and he's got an eraser and a pencil in his bag and he wants to play helicopter too. And if he's a socially sophisticated kid, he'll hang around the outside of the little game and watch and then he'll take out his eraser and maybe start making buzzing noises with it. And when, when he can see that there's an opening in the play situation, he'll swoop in and maybe he'll get integrated. It's like when you're at a cocktail party and you hear a conversation and you're hovering around the edge. You wait for an opening and then you say something that's germane to the topic. And if you're sophisticated enough and the people are friendly enough, then it'll open and you'll be allowed in. Now, even popular kids often get rebuffed when they try to enter an already structured game. Unpopular kids don't watch what's going on, and then they come along and try to impose their game on the entire group, and then they have a tantrum if they don't get let in. And so that's a good example of how identity is negotiated at the earliest stages. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to 
make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, that, then, that feels to me um, something, it, it feels very different than what I would think of as identity. So, I'm going to try to put this in context of what I see as the major movements of your work and what makes you so powerful. Tell me where I go astray. So I look at your two books and and I'm literally just paraphrasing from what you said, that they're basically the yin and yang. So you have chaos on one hand and you have order on the other. Both will tend towards tyranny. And as far as I can tell, and this is why I do not understand why people are pushing back on you, why there's so much bizarre backlash, is the moral of your story is, hey, everybody, guess what? You need to find this balance between the two. If you only exist in the creative potential, it ends up being all chaos all the time. If you only exist in the conservatism, the things that are already there and working, they will tend towards tyranny, solidify and cease to be useful and die. And so now it's this game and you do this brilliant explanation of what happens in a city that shows exactly this with artists. And if you can walk us through that and tell me if, if, the identity of the artist, if that's what you're trying to get at with identity, because I'm understanding what you're saying in terms of, okay, in that moment, we're negotiating, but there's a grander sense of who we become that is seems to me to be a negotiation with the world, so collectively everybody else, but also mm-hmm. a negotiation with how I want to feel about myself when I'm alone and the things that I think are right, the things that yeah, I think are wrong. Okay, well, that, okay, well, that's very complicated, so I'll walk it through. So. As you pointed out, I'm going to hold up these books. So this is the new book, Beyond Order, and it does concentrate on pathologies of structure and the previous book, which is 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. And 
the the underlying presupposition there is that in our phenomenological landscape, so that's the world as we experience it, complete with emotions and motivations and dreams, and so the full range of human experience, including the subjective and the objective, let's say, can broadly be broken into two domains. And one is the domain of things that are beyond our grasp and reach, and that's the unknown. The unknown emerges, when the unknown emerges, you tend to experience anxiety. And then there's the, the known, and I define the known very specifically and, and very carefully. The known is the place you are when what you're doing result, produces the results you want. And I say want because that brings motivation and emotion into the game. So you're motivated to pursue something. You pursue it and what you want happens. Not only do you get what you want, but you get validation for the structure that governs your perceptions and your actions. Now, if you, you know, imagine that you're, um, you know, you're lonely, and you approach a young woman in a in a social situation, um, attempting to make some contact with her, um, you you want to alleviate your loneliness, and so you hope you make a good impression, and you tell a joke, let's say, in a relatively awkward manner, and you get rebuffed, then you feel you you. You're no longer where you control. You're no longer where you exercise control. And that brings up all sorts of specters in, immediately. It's like, well, why were you rebuffed? Well, maybe all women are uh, to be despised. That's one theory. Maybe there's something deeply wrong with you. Maybe you're having an off day. Maybe it wasn't a very good joke. And so when you don't get what you want, then a landscape of question emerge, questions emerge, and those questions can resonate through different levels of your identity, from the trivial, oh, I told the joke wrong, to the profound, there's nothing desirable about me and I'll be alone for the rest of my life. Now, you asked about identity, and I used the example of a child's game, but I could go through an identity, and so I do this particularly in Maps of Meaning. And so, for example, let's say I'm sitting typing, Okay, we could decompose my identity. So at the highest level of resolution, I'm moving my fingers. And so that could be my identity. I'm the thing that moves its fingers. And then slightly, at a slightly broader level than that, I'm typing words. And at a broader level, I'm typing phrases and thinking them up, and then sentences, and then paragraphs, and then chapters, and then, let's say, full papers or books, that, that's, a, that's a productive unit. So I'm the author of a book or the author of a paper. That's an identity. But then that's nested inside, for me, it would be nested inside being a clinical psychologist, being a professor, being a good citizen. And then that's nested in some, inside something that's even broader than that. And I would say that that's nested inside a, a cultural heroism. And I don't mean that specific to me. I mean that for everyone. That's the outermost level, whether you're playing out the role of hero or adversary, say, that's, that's the highest possible level of identity. That's the level at which fundamental morality is adjudicated. And there isn't really anything beyond. Outside that is, it's beyond us. It's the transcendent itself. And you're all of those at, at any one time. You're all of those levels of identity. But those are all practical, right? So those are the roles that you're playing in the world. All of those are a consequence of who you are, but in interplay, like in this situation with the child, all of that's negotiated with other people. And so if you have a functional identity, you see, if you have a functional identity, when you act it out in the world, 
then you get what you want and need. And if an identity doesn't do that, well, then you should, you either retool your identity or you retool the world. Your now, conception speak, of the world? Well, if you're retooling your conception of the world, then you're retooling yourself. No, you can actually, I mean, what a revolutionary does is try to bring the world into alignment so with literally their change theory. The world. Yes, literally. Well, and we all do that to some degree because we are practical engineers, you know. I mean, not only do we perceive the world, but we also interact with it so that it does manifest itself in accordance with our desires. There's limits, obviously, to how far you can go or how far you should go with that. You know, and um, what are the limits? Well, there's practical limits. Nature won't do what you want it to unless you're very sophisticated in your in your application of your knowledge and other people will object so now you might say well you should forge forward regardless of their objection and you know there are circumstances under which that's true but generally speaking that's not a very good idea it certainly doesn't make you popular as a child and so that brings up one other issue i would also say and this i developed this idea quite a bit in the new book, you go from egocentrism as a child, you have to go through this period where you're socialized as a child and adolescent. And that really means that you allow your identity to be molded and shaped by the group. And you know, you think about how important peers, friends and peers are to children and adolescents. You know, your mother will say uh, when you're a teenager, well, if Johnny jumped off the bridge, would you too? And you say, well, no, but the real answer is, well, probably if all your <laughs> friends are there taunting you, you would, in fact, jump off the bridge. And not only that, generally speaking, you should. Because it's your duty, it's your developmental duty as a child and a teenager to take your, your isolated self and turn it into a, a functioning social unit. Now... You could say, well, do you, you, Peterson wants everybody to be a functional social unit, a robot, you know, a cog in the wheel. And, and I would say, well, that, that isn't where development stops. It has to go through that period before you can emerge as a, as a genuine individual, which means you have to know the rules of the game before you can break them. But not being able to abide by the rules is not anything like being a genuine creative individual. Those are not the same thing. And, there's plenty of attempt to confuse the two things because it's much better if you can't follow the rules to view yourself as a uh, avant-garde revolutionary than as a failure. And it's not like I don't know that that social molding crushes. Obviously it crushes and everyone feels that. These are existential problems. Everyone deals with the tyranny of culture and the fact that it does want you to be a certain way and not other ways. And those ways might not be in keeping with your, with your, the deepest elements of your nature. Well, tough luck for you, you because you're also the beneficiary of culture. And so you have to offer it your pound of flesh. Now you shouldn't do that at the expense of your soul, but you shouldn't stay an immature child other, either. Okay, and so, so this, this notion of identity that we're being fed is very, very, it's very Thin. What are we being fed? Be very specific. Well, 
Well, there is the idea, for example, that your identity is whatever you say it is and that everyone else has to go along with that. No, that isn't how it works, partly because no one even knows how to go along with it. Like, let's say, just for example, that you're uh, gender non-binary. Okay, what am I supposed to do about that? Man, I don't know. I hardly know what to do if the rules are already there. So let's say I grow up, I want to, being a heterosexual male, I want to find a woman, fall in love with her, raise a family, have children, have grandchildren. That's a game. I know the rules to it. Not well, because everyone's a failure at that. You know, it's very difficult, but at least you kind of know what the, the goal is, and so does the person you're with. Well, you leap out of that, which is already terribly difficult, you leap out of that into completely unknown territory, saying um, uh, that I'm presenting yourself as something other than those categories, leaves everyone around you and you completely bereft of direction. Let me put it what in do do? words that I get from um, your material. So what I heard you just say, tell me if I'm wrong, is... Part of the negotiation that we do from the time we are little kids and figuring out that play, we're up on the bridge, we jump maybe because we want to, you know, fit in with our peer group. Um, it There is a sense of order to that. Now, you've been very careful and it will drive me crazy if people respond to this interview as if you have not already illustrated that it is the balance between two opposing forces. But so we need enough order so that somebody can find their way through the world and that many I think a big part of the reason that your work has resonated so profoundly with people is they're, excuse me, they are left in a world where they don't know how to move forward in a way that serves them spiritually, practically as well, for sure. And so, well, hey, everybody. Both of those, both of those practically shades into spiritually as you move up into the broader reaches of identity. You know, and look, this, this, See, one of the things, I really laid this out in Maps of Meaning. It took me a long time to understand that belief regulated emotion. So what happens is that if you act out your identity, if you act out your beliefs in the world, and what you want doesn't happen, what happens is that your body defaults into emergency preparation for action. And the reason for that is you've wandered too far away from the campfire. And now you're in the forest and maybe you're naked. And so what do you do then? And the answer is, well, you don't know what to do. So what do you do when you don't want know what to do? And the answer is you prepare to do everything. And the problem with that is that it's unbelievably draining psychophysiologically. Like it hurts you. And there, there's, there's an immense physiological literature detailing the, the cost of, of, of exactly that kind of response. And so people need people and animals. They people stay where what they do has the results they want. That's partly why you want to be around people who share your cultural presuppositions, is because you know that, for example, even in small ways, let's say you're a country music aficionado, and you're hanging around with your cowboy-hatted buddies, and you throw on a tape, and everyone says great tunes, man, and you you know you're happy about that, but you know. You throw on a piece by Tchaikovsky and you're you're in a different subculture and who the hell are you? And people, the people in your group will say, man, who listens to music like that? And like, that's a trivial example in some sense, but 
I believe it's one that everyone can resonate to. We like, we, it's very hard on us not to be where we know what, we know that what we want is going to happen. We hate that. We hate that. And no wonder. So, and then, you know, there are, there are varying degrees of that. Obviously you can really be where you don't know what's going to happen, or you can only be there to some degree, but by and large, by and large, we're conservative creatures, even if we're liberal in temperament, there's not, we can't tolerate that much uncertainty. And there, you might ask, well, why? And the answer is, well, because you can be hurt, pain, you can be damaged, you can become intolerably anxious, and you can die. So it's no wonder you're sensitive, we're very sensitive to negative emotion. And so our identities, right, functional identity regulates your emotion. But you do that in concert with other people. In the first chapter of the new book, Beyond Order, the rule is uh, don't casually denigrate social institutions or creative achievement. That's that balance again. Um, I make the case that most of your sanity is socially distributed. And what I mean by that is, well, let's say that you know how to behave. You're well socialized. You can play with others. Now. I said already in this conversation, if you didn't learn to play with others between the time you were two and four, you will never learn. And psychologists have beat their heads against the wall trying to rehabilitate antisocial children. They can't do it after the age of four. Is that no, because areas of the brain just don't develop? Well, it seems to be partly because the kids fall farther and farther behind. So let's say you make the leap from egocentric dependence on your mother at two and three to immersion in a peer group. Well, then the, then you, you pick peers that are at your same developmental level and you chase each other up the developmental ladder. And the longer you're out of that, the farther you fall behind. And so, you know, kids, five-year-old kids might come across another five-year-old kid who tends to cry too much if they don't get their way. And they'll say, we don't want to play with the baby. And what they're saying is, we have to find someone who's at our developmental level, shares our developmental horizon so that we can mutually scaffold our further development. Now, they're not going to say that, obviously, but that's the situation. And kids test each other out when they first meet. So do adults. Game, 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 game. Can you play? Are you playing at the same level as me? I'm playing my game at the level that will further my development. Can you play along with me? If not, well, maybe you're lower in status and I can pull you up as a mentor. Maybe you're higher in status and I can learn from you. But if you're a peer, we can play together. Anyways, if you're acceptable to your peers and you behave well, they'll accept you. And then they tell you all the time if you're acting appropriately. You know, if your jokes are funny, if you're dominating the conversation, if you're bringing something of value to the table. And all you have to do is pay attention to the social cues and you'll keep yourself regulated. Okay, I want to dive in here and I'm going to see if I'm tracking all of this because I'm I'm putting this in a larger context of this really matters and it applies directly to something that's happening in the world. It seems to me that you don't dive into things unless they have real relevance. So is it fair to define identity as the self-narrative that emerges from an nearly infinite number of interactions with other people and nature itself. Well, I, I would say yes, but that gets to the point. It's so broad. It's almost, it, it starts to lack 
definition. So I can take it finer than that. I I am trying to sort of find the borders, yeah, and then yeah, yeah. then then I will work in. Okay, so if we're if we still remain true at that point, um, then having in the book you walk through a lot of some of the people that you've done psychoanalysis with, and so we get a lot of insights into the actual people that you're dealing with and how people can begin to tell themselves a narrative that is very dysfunctional, and you help them out. I don't want to say easily because that that sounds like it cheapens it, but pretty straightforward in helping them reframe. And framing is something I'm obsessed with. And so mm-hmm. our identity is based on this. It's a self-narrative that we tell ourselves based on the interactions we have with other people and nature, such that we begin to solidify a set of behaviors that make sense for us based on the goals that we want to achieve and where we're trying to go. Am I still good? Yes. Well, you improved your definition by adding the behavior element because I would say the fundamental element of identity is what you act out. On top of that, there's the story that you tell. Do I have to be consciously aware of it? Well, you're consciously aware of some of it, not of other elements of it. You can't be consciously aware of everything you do. And does the conscious and conscious alike make up my identity as you define it? Your identity is the story you tell about your actions in the world, but it's also your actions in the world. Okay. Now, why, why does my identity, and I assume as I understand it, why does my identity as I understand it matter to the course of my life? Because it's the, it's the structure of the, it's, it's the structure from which the plans that you implement in the world originates. And you're always acting in the world. You have problems to solve all the time. And you have to solve, you have, you have to solve. There's all sorts of problems you have to solve to stay alive. And you have to solve them for today. But you have to solve them in a way that works for today, that doesn't screw up tomorrow too bad, and leaves next week intact, and next month and next year. And so there's a continuum of you. So that's another, see, that's the other reason why your identity can't just be you. Because, or how you feel right now, because you're not only who you are right now and how you feel right now. You're this strange entity that exists right now, but that already existed in the past and that is going to repeat itself into the future. And so you're actually a community of individuals stretched out across time. And the plans that you implement have to be beneficial for that entire community of individuals. And it's going to be the case that there isn't much difference between you acting properly with regards to your extended temporal self and you acting properly in relationship to other people. That's interesting. So you're stuck with society just because you know that there's a future. You're stuck with society even if you're solipsistic, right? If you think you're the only conscious consciousness that there is, there's still the fact that you have duration across time and that, you know, you have to take into account what the consequence for your actions is going to be on the 50-year-old Tom and the 80-year-old Tom. And so... Now here's a question. Do you think that there's something that has pathologized the creation of useful identities in today's culture? Well, I think each person can judge that for themselves to some degree. I mean, the more functional your identity, the better regulated your emotion. 
the more positive emotion, the less negative emotion, certainly negative emotion doesn't rise to an intolerable level. If you're fortunate, your identity is well constructed. I think that any insistence that identity is something other than a pragmatic set of actions, let's say, that orient you properly in the world is sufficiently sparse so that it isn't going to solve the problem that the problems that have to be solved. So I might insist, I'm whoever I think I am at the moment, and if you were polite, you would go along with that. And to some degree, I would be right. We do that when we allow people to save face. But if I'm right, we, we go along with their pre presuppositions, presumptions. We don't call them on their mischief. And a certain amount of that's polite. But that doesn't alleviate the necessity for me of adopting a role that other people find valuable. Otherwise, what the hell do I have to trade? And you so, might say, well, why should I have to trade? Well, <laughs> you, if you can live all by yourself, then you don't have to trade. But if you can't, you have to bring something of value to the table. And you can't I, insist on its value. Humans are not intended to decline. Decline is hugely painful because happiness comes from progress. Mm. Unhappiness well comes said. from regress. And when you feel that something is harder than it used to be, so it's interesting, you know, you see this, the decline in the fluid intelligence curve we just talked about. If you're really a striver, um, and that's who I'm working with. I'm working with people who want to make the most with their lives. And if you look, if you never do anything with your life, you're not going to know it's over. You're not going to have this big crisis at the end of your life. It's because you never did anything. And it was like, I watched a lot of TV. Awesome. It's like, I can still do that. Don't you think their whole life is a crisis? Not really. No, really? Actually, no, no, not really. Uh, we're no, 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 no. It's, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, well, here's the thing. It depends on what you mean by happiness and what a good life is. You know, I want my life as a striver, but I also recognize that it's not normal in many ways to and strive it not to strive to the extent that you have mm. but is that what you mean by it's not normal yeah and it, it creates problems i mean you 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 rain hell on yourself yep when you're actually doing the stuff that you've done and there's a lot of ways that you could have had a much easier life a much more relaxing life a oh, life with greater peace frequently yeah for sure so that's all i mean it's, an, it's not a very profound point in that way but when i you know when i was when things were going poorly and i was deeply unhappy because i was in a state of regress my wife said you're unhappy. You just need to quit. And I said, that's insane. <laughs> I mean, like one can't just walk away, but of course. And she said, yes, you can. Absolutely. You can do anything you want. I said, we'll be poor. She said, we're already poor. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, how do you know? You know, it's, it's, you know, multiplying by zero is still zero. And, uh, and so we did, we just, we, we bailed, you know, we went to, we left Barcelona, we moved to Boca Raton, Florida, where nobody knew us. I took a pretty easy teaching job and I started studying by correspondence at night. Nobody knew I was doing it. She had a minimum wage job. She spoke very poor English, had not graduated from high school. Um, and so was learning English and making, you know, six bucks an hour or whatever it was. And I was getting paid to teach the French horn while secretly working on my bachelor's degree at night to build my, to, to rebuild the person that I was. And then finished that and went on to, and started my PhD, which is what I really thought I needed to do. And that took me a little, I came here to Los Angeles, as a matter of fact, and studied the Rand Graduate School in Santa Monica. And then I learned a new trade. I learned, I actually learned who I was as a person again for the first time, but it was like, four years of, you know, it was weird. I couldn't, I remember trying to sign a check during that time and I couldn't replicate my own signature. 
And it turns out that that's not actually quite frequent. When people are in this period of liminality between phases of their life, that their handwriting will change. What? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's actually a common occurrence. I didn't know. It's like I'm trying because to sign a check for the bank, and it's like, I'm sure, sorry, Mr. Like, Brooks, this is not the right signature. Is yeah. it? Is it because there's a subconscious part of you that's like, I'm not that person anymore? It's. I don't. It's. It's not well understood. But there's a the the neurophysiology of a lot of this stuff is we're just starting to understand. There's no doubt something that where these things are connected, where your sense of yourself is somehow connected to, to you know, these motor skills in a particular way. I couldn't replicate my own signature sufficiently. I got like rejected by the bank for cashing a check into my own account at one point. I'm like, my, my, my early dementia? I mean, what, early stage something? What's going on here? And it, what it was was I was in this profound state of liminality, which in retrospect was this, just fertile period. You know, I tell the story in the book is a place that you and I both know as Pacific Northwest guys. Mm. There's a place called Lincoln City in Oregon. That's you're near just north of Newport. And I used to go there because my aunt was uh, the receptionist, the hotel. And she had a, she lived in a trailer near the beach. And it was like this bliss. I used to go there. And I remember the first time I was trying to fish off the rocks in, in Lincoln City, Oregon. I was catching nothing. This old guy lived in a shack is watching me. And he comes up and says, kid, I've been... I've been watching you. You know, today he'd be arrested. But, and, and I said, he said, you're not catching anything, right? I said, no. He says, because you're doing it wrong. You can't catch any fish unless it's a falling tide. And that's when the tide is going out very quickly, mm. rushing out between the rocks. And I'm like, well, all the fish are gone, right? He says, no, no, no. You'll see it's stirring up the plankton. The fish go crazy. It's happening in 45 minutes. He has his fishing pole. We throw our, we throw our lines in and we're pulling them out by, you know, by the tens. It's unbelievable. And, and afterward, he's feeling sort of philosophical. He lights up a cigarette on the rocks. I'm 11 or something. And he says, hey, kid, you know, during a falling tide, you can only make one mistake. I said, what's that? He said, not having your line in the water. And I have learned this, that the time between the tides of your life, the falling tide of your life looks like you're losing everything. Get your line in the water mm -hmm. because that's the most fertile period of your life. So what does it mean to have your line in the water? You must try new things. You must be fully alive. You must try everything you possibly can. You I'm must need you to define fully alive. To be to to wake up each day and to live that day full of possibility. Not to nurse your wounds, not to waste your time, not to try to do things that you used to do. To be fully alive is to be alive to the new set of experiences that's that's coming across the transom. That's super important because during this time of liminality, there's a, by the way, there's a lot of research on this. This is not just an anecdote about, you know, this kid fishing in Oregon. This is, there's a lot of research that shows that this time between periods in your life, which there's a guy named Bruce Feiler who's, who writes a book about transitions. And he said during these life quakes, you know, if, you're, if your spouse just left you, that's a fertile period for you to mm -hmm. learn new things. If you, you know, you've lost somebody to death, if you've, if you're, if you're going through chemotherapy, for example, this is, and you, and you're very you've afraid just been through a pandemic, for example, for example, if you, during the pandemic, many people find that despite the fact that they hated it and were insecure and it was horrible, that their lives transformed for the good. Mm. That in terms of what we're talking about here, the two curves, fluid and crystallized intelligence, that period between the two where you're you're declining in one and the other's increasing, but you don't know how to get on it or even what it means. That's your most fertile period. That's when things are, can be absolutely magic. They're not going to be fun. You might not be happy, but that's when magic can happen. So tell me about this then, because this happened to you. 
you've been in periods between that you got you get out you're successful but you're miserable and so you had to change what was the time between the tides for you what happened you have a concept that resonates with me profoundly which is that suffering is sacred mm. you have to do it well though and i think there's a few key things that you have to recognize. And when you were telling your story about your wife, A, I don't even know who I would be without my wife. And as I think so, for a period, my wife and I now, I would say, are in very a-traditional gender roles. But in the beginning of our marriage, it was very traditional in a way that was profoundly um, transformative. So much of the way that she tried to express herself in the world was through me. Hmm. So she was a stay-at-home wife, but very shrewd, very sharp, and would push me to be better and was beyond supportive when things were not going well for me and in a very similar vein of like, I don't care if we're poor. I want to see you happy. That's all that matters to me. And so when I was profoundly unhappy, I would come home and I would say, don't ask me about my day. I don't want to think about it. I have to separate myself from that. And so finally it got to the point where she was like, look, this is starting to damage our marriage. And so I'm going to need you to work less, to figure something out, whatever. And so that's when I went in and decided I was going to quit and we were going to move to a small town in Greece and I was wow. going to write again. She's Greek. And, uh, it was, I was going to do that, which made me feel alive. And so that was the refrain. I want to feel alive again. I want to feel alive again. And so I knew what that felt like because I had pursued my art so fervently for years and it made me feel some kind of way. And so I recognized the decline, was able to associate it with, well, you're just trying to get rich. You've made money. It hasn't changed. So there's something here that you've fundamentally misunderstood about the world. And my, I guess, liminal thing had been, it had been going on for a while because when I left film school, and did not understand how to break into the film industry, that was a devastating period. And I would just lay on the floor. Mm. And I couldn't afford to furnish my apartment. And I would, the, the plenty of room sort of, to lie yeah, down. like hilarity <laughs> was not lost on me. I could feel like that cheap nylon carpet that you get in cheap apartments. And it would leave like an imprint on my face because I would just lay on the floor. And I'm like, this is so ridiculous. And I started reading about the brain. And right. I don't remember where that insight came from. Maybe something I picked up in college. I don't know. But I was like, I need to learn about how the brain works. And so this is late 90s and brain plasticity is being debated. And it wasn't, there wasn't an answer. Some people were like, yes, it's real. Other people were like, no, it's not. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to act as if it's true because that's so much mm -hmm. more hopeful. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't know the Einstein quote back then, but the quote of the most important decision anybody will make is whether they live in a friendly or a hostile universe. And me deciding mm -hmm. that I lived in a world where brain plasticity was real was me saying I live in a friendly universe. Right. And so I started trying to get better. And I was teaching at the time. And so I'm teaching film and I start noticing I can make the students' films better if I can make their films better. Because by this point, I believe I have no talent. That's a whole part of the story. So I believe I'm completely talentless. I thought I was born with talent. I clearly was not. I don't know how to break into the industry. I'm going to teach because those that can do and those that can't teach. But I'm reading about the brain, brain plasticity. I'm helping the students make their films better. And I have a question in my mind, which is, well, if I can make their films better, why can't I make my own better? I was like, maybe I could. 
And so that gives me the hope that I need to be fully alive, to start approaching things with, hey, maybe I just need to get better and I can work on this. And I had read the Tao Te Ching when I was 16, Hmm. which plants some very profound seeds in my mind, which I will now call a growth mindset. But back then, like, I didn't really understand how to put them to use in my life. But I start putting them to use in my life. I start getting better at filmmaking. And you couple that with my wife being just incredibly encouraging, not afraid to be poor, wanting to see me happy. Um, And... And that was when I went in and as I said before we started rolling, I went into my partners and I quit. And I said, look, I can't keep pursuing money anymore. And so I don't know, my version of having my my line in the water was knowing I wanted to feel alive, believing that if I went and did the thing that I wanted to do, that I would get better at it. And that if I got good enough, I couldn't be denied. And so the old old Steve Martin quote, this would have been... Have been like 28, 29, 29. something. So you're like really that. on your fluid intelligence curve in a big way, but big not way. feeling it. So right. I have struggled my entire life. Have you seen Amadeus? Mm-hmm, for sure. Okay. So Solieri mm-hmm. laments to God, "Why did you make me? Oh my God, you're a musician. This will resonate mm-hmm. with you. Why did you make me just good enough to realize I'll never be as good as Mozart? Mm-hmm. Why couldn't you have made me like just a, another person in the crowd that can appreciate what right. he does. But you had to make me just good enough that I want to be that good yeah. and I realize I never will be. That's how I have felt my entire life. Mm. I've always had friends that were just enough smarter than me that I was like, damn, I'm never gonna be that smart. And so I always tried to find a different lane and in the beginning it was being funny. And so for a long time, I wanted to be a stand-up comic, mm. but it was all self-deprecating because right. I had low self-esteem. Mm. I would just make fun of myself all day, which only reinforced my low self-esteem. For sure. And so while I was very funny, it didn't feel good. And so ultimately end up rejecting that. Um, but yeah, so at the height of my fluid intelligence, I did not feel intelligent. I felt the exact opposite. And you were getting tons of material success, thus helping you to understand later on as you as you increase in wisdom that the if if you take the instrumentality of money and make it your intrinsic focus you're destined for misery no doubt now this is an interesting you know insight that that we we can take back to ancient times but saint thomas aquinas in 1265 writes his summa theologica the seminal text of Western philosophy, you know, forget the, just the theology, just Western philosophy. And in it, he talks about this very interesting thing. He says that, that man, mankind, humankind, we'd say today, has four idols. You pursue, everybody pursues one or more of four idols. And he calls them the substitutes for God. Because his supposition Whoa. is that, that we all want God. But God is extremely inconvenient. A lot of one-sided conversations and a ton of rules. So we look Sounds for substitutes right. that have kind of these divine characteristics. The problem is they're 180 degrees off God. They're money, power, pleasure, and fame. Fame, he says, honor, which is, has different connotations. I have a son who's a Marine who serves with honor. That's not what we mean. We're talking about admiration, envy uh, of other people of you, which is, which is people want that, or, or just prestige, or maybe fame. You know, some people actually want to be famous, but let's just call it money, power, pleasure, and fame. Everybody, you know, I play this game, what's my idol? And I'll ask people, not what's your actual idol, but what is not your idol? You know, of these four, money, power, pleasure, fame, what's the one that least attracts you, that you could get rid of with total impunity? Mm-hmm. You don't care. And then we'll, we'll start eliminating, and we're going to find your idol is the whole thing. Wow. Now, the interesting thing about that is that what he says is not that you'll go to hell if you do that. He says you'll be unhappy if you don't recognize 
the idol. If you don't recognize the idols in your life, the trouble is the limbic system of your brain, mother nature, that tyrant tells you that you'll actually be happy if you get your idol. And so you chase it and you chase it. You can't quite figure out what you're going to do if you get it. Like you know, Tom's going to get you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. What are you going to do with that money that you would actually like? And you can't quite figure out. Well, yeah, because if you, if you articulate it, you know, if I say you'll buy a yacht, and you're like, I don't, that sounds like kind of a hassle to have a yacht. Maybe it sounds good, but not that good, right? You, the real reason you want that is because you want admiration, because you want the, the validation of what it represents of you to you. You want a, this transference of social comparison you've always done with other people. You want to actually feel the thing that you felt for others about yourself. That's what the idols do. That's the nasty switcheroo. That's the, that's the despotism of, this, of, of, of mistaking the intrinsic good for the instrumentality. That's why Thomas Aquinas was so astute in what he was talking about here. So when we play this game, and we, we, we see what is actually holding us back. And you experience this. Absolutely, you were chasing the thing, chasing the thing, and chasing the thing, getting more and more and more miserable because you're actually getting closer and closer to your idol and realizing it will not realize one single thing that you needed for your own happiness. It had no intrinsic worth. Look, if there's anything about money, by the way, the research on money is very clear that... <clears throat> It doesn't actually ever bring happiness. It lowers unhappiness, which are processed in different hemispheres of the, of the brain. Happiness and unhappiness are not opposites. They're, not, they're different experiences. And what happens is at low levels, money will lower unhappiness. So when I could finally go to the dentist, I felt better. The trouble is I don't know how to do the sums inside my brain. I just knew I felt better. And we always mistake lower unhappiness for higher happiness. And so mm. early on, you're like, wow, I went from from you know, $15,000 to $20,000 a year, and I felt better. I actually felt better about myself. I was able to, to eliminate some of these sources of, of you know, misery, so I'm happier. And so you get into the pattern early on. You wire your brain when you're a young person working your way up the ladder. More money, feel better. That means more happiness. And you realize that going from $250,000 to $300,000 is not doing it. That because it's not big enough jump, apparently. And so you go and you go and you go and you go and you go, and you're basically just chasing a lure. It's a real tyranny. No doubt. And that's what you experienced. And that's why you were miserable, right? Because you couldn't get there from here. It's interesting. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Yes, I put different words to it, and I'm curious to see what you think about this. So I think about it from an evolutionary standpoint. So we have directives in our brain that there is going to be a sense of dis-ease if you don't do certain things. 
I think that deep and profound unhappiness can come from pursuing the wrong thing so that you're right. spending your time doing things that just, they rob you of energy instead of giving you energy. But I also think that people end up profoundly unhappy by not doing things that nature wants them to do. Right. And I think one of the things that nature wants us to do, and so just not doing it will be a problem, is work really hard to turn your potential into skill set. Yeah. And so if things come easily to you, even though you're on top of the world and everybody else admires you and wants to be you, that there will be a sense of dis-ease for you right. because you're not working hard. It doesn't feel meritorious. Yeah. Nature has to find a proxy, right? Yeah, yeah. So. Nature wants you to have children, so it makes sure that sex is intensely pleasurable. But that's really just a proxy for have kids. Mm. So that I find really interesting, that, that nature is working in these weird proxies. So people end up like, you think you're supposed to do one thing, chase money, power, fame, whatever. And you're like, why does this suck? But all of those things actually do have utility. Mm. And so the thing with money is, People are always going to pursue it. The thing with fame is people are always going to pursue it. Why? Because it actually has utility. So money, for instance, is more powerful than people think, not less, but it isn't what you've been told. Mm. So it's never what myself and everyone else included is trying to do is feel better about themselves. Right. It won't help with that. It right. cannot touch your self-esteem. And that's like the biggest like mind fuck ever. Your wife won't love you more. Your, your children you won't respect you more when yeah. you have more money. Exactly. And more you, troubling. Yes. You won't respect you more. Yes. Which is ultimately the, because other people will. Like people treat me differently because I have some micro fame and, then, and because and I have it's money. actually troubling too. Because when you know somebody is instrumentalizing you, when you know somebody is objectifying you because of this outside characteristic, it makes you profoundly uncomfortable. It's interesting. People hate that. You know, it's the one thing where we will allow people to objectify us. You're well known, you're successful, and people will be nice to you because of that. And deep down, you know that they, 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 they don't love you. And it's not how it plays out in my head. How does it play out in your head? That I have no ability to be vulnerable around them. Oh, I see. For and sure. So but that's I the same part of self-objectification. That's the same part of objectification. Mm. You, and and if, when you're objectified, you can't be a full person. There's another interesting thing that might actually apply. You're a creative. You're fundamentally a creative. When you were doing your work, you were thrown off the creative process. Now, why is creativity intensely pleasurable? You get, you've read the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the, the great social psychologist who wrote a book, a very famous book called Flow, F-L-O-W, Flow. And what it talks about is how minutes, how hours turn to minutes of sheer pleasure mm. when you're in this flow state, when you're doing something that you can master. You're, you can, it's not too easy. It, it requires your ability, but you can master it because of your skill mm. and you can get into this groove. Creatives must create. If creatives are not creating, they will be miserable because they can't attain a flow state. It's very possible, Tom, that when you were in this part of your career, you needed to create. What do you, you wanted to quit and go to Greece to do creation. You were basically craving that. It's like you had no protein in your diet for a year or something. And it's like, I don't know, I just can't stop thinking about peanut butter. Well, because <laughs> you, you, were, you, were, you were craving this macronutrient in your psyche. And, and you were never getting a flow state. And if you're denied the flow state that uniquely comes to you through creativity, you're going you're gonna to be practically suicidal. 
Yeah, it was it was definitely a rough period. That's interesting. I've never thought about it as being intrinsically a reflection of the pleasurability of flow, but you might be right. It's just I feel I feel alive. That is yeah. the right word. I feel alive when I'm creating. I yeah. am never happier than when I'm creating. It's amazing. People who are fundamentally creatives look the same thing. You know, when I retired as a CEO and I came back to writing, speaking, and teaching, um, I'm a new man. I'm a new man for the past three years. It's extraordinary. You said something a while ago. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I want to go back to it now. You said you rediscovered yourself. Yeah. What does that mean? Like you need a sense of identity? Is that a core part of this? Like is when you say you rediscovered, is it a self-narrative? It's you, you know who you deeply are as a person. You're acquainted with yourself. You're acquainted with your true self. And just as with people who are around you, you can, you can create a, an identity that's actually not authentic you can create an identity to yourself that's not authentic. You can be giving yourself a self-narrative that's not true to actually who you are as a person. What does it mean who you are? What so you're good at, what you love? It generally speaking has to do with being in the zone of what you actually love to do and what you appreciate most in your life when you're in line with your own values, when you're living according to your own values. So Jung would have put it this way. Carl Jung, his definition of his understanding of happiness was that you need to understand your own values, what you value, what you think is proper and correct and moral. And if you know what that is and can articulate it and live according to that, you will be happy. Hmm. If you, Do you agree with that? I think it's actually there's a lot of truth to that. Because you know you have to figure out what you think, what your model of the world actually is, what you think truth is. And then living in accord with your own values, with your own integrity is, is really critically important because when people live outside that groove, they're, they're never in equilibrium. They're just never, the problem is that they're not comfortable. They're not comfortable in their own skin. And I've noticed this, you know, I was working, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was good being the president of a think tank. I was lucky to be president of a think tank. I believed in the work, but it, it wasn't who I was. And so I was kind of out of my groove for 10 years, 10 and a half years. And when I started going, when I went back to writing and speaking and teaching and doing creative work, I said, oh, it's weird. Is that weird. always who you were? Or was yeah. that because you switched into crystal? No, it's always who I was always a creative. You know, as a kid, I was painting and writing and composing music. And I just always wanted to be, I was, creativity is the most important thing in my life or curiosity and creativity. Are the, are the most important thing that I can, not the most important thing in my life, the most important thing that I can do and when I'm actually happiest. And when I was managing a large workforce, managing a lot of creatives to their best selves, I mean, it was, they had certainly creative moments to it, to be sure, but it wasn't comfortable to me. And when I, my second curve, which was much more crystallized intelligence, is a lot, also a lot more creative. So I was kind of out of equilibrium for a long time during that period as well, which compounds the problem of my declining fluid intelligence, also not being in a creative role, but it's just so much better. I mean, I, I teach at a great university, which I love. I write for a magazine every week about things that I'm really interested in. I get to talk to you about it. This is, well, beats working. So true. For some reason, I was just thinking today, like I was pacing, listening to you, and I was like, I'm technically working right now. Weird. I was like, this is, Cool. It is super cool. And, you know, there are people that I've met. It's interesting. You know, I talk to lawyers who don't feel like they're working. Oh. I talk to you know, a guy who's putting talk in cabinets in my house. And, and he's super into putting in cabinets. Mm. He loves making cabinets. He was talking about all the details and he's so proud of his work. And I say, do you, do you, do you like your work? And he said, it doesn't feel like work. 
you know, I went on a fishing expedition, deep sea fishing expedition with my son, Carlos. We, we, he loves to fish and we go fishing. And, uh, and the guy says every morning I wake up and, and he says, today I'm going fishing. <laughs> <laughs> and so bad. this is what we all need to find. I mean, we need to each person because we have a, the blessing of living in an economy where you can do a lot of different things. Mm. Um, the problem is that people chase these extrinsic lures, the money, power, pleasure, and fame, and they get out of the groove of what they're supposed to do. And then they wonder why they're unhappy. What are some habits that I can easily incorporate into my daily life to accomplish fulfillment? All right, here's the important thing to understand about fulfillment is that it is a process and there is a formula, what I call the fulfillment formula, the aptly named. And the way that it works is this. First, I want you to understand that there are these imperatives in your brain given to you by evolution and you are going to be emotionally rewarded for doing certain things and emotionally punished for not doing other things. And that's where fulfillment comes in. When you put yourself in an evolutionary context, you're gonna understand why the formula is what the formula is. So I'll quickly give you the formula and then explain it in context. So the formula goes like this. You're gonna work really hard to gain a set of skills that allow you to serve not only yourself, but other people, okay? Now, why is that the formula? So first of all, it's very important to understand that growing up on the plains of the savanna, you would have had to work really hard to stay alive, to feed your family. So you had to face tremendous danger, massive obstacles. And so nature only has two ways to get you moving, and that is pleasure and pain punishment reward. So when it wants behavior, it's going to reward that by making it uh, feel amazing. And if it doesn't want behavior, then it's going to make sure that if you're engaging in it, it sucks. And if it wants you to do something and you don't do it, that will also suck. So this is where uh, pleasure and pain come in and where you have to really understand why this cycle is so deeply embedded in your brain. So because from an evolutionary standpoint, working hard was necessary for survival, then working hard, working hard has to feel good. And conversely, if you're not working hard, then you're gonna feel a deep sense of unease. So that's why I say that the first step in the fulfillment formula is that you're gonna to have to work really hard to gain a set of skills. Now, the reason that you're working hard is because if you don't work hard, even now in a modern context where you can probably get away without putting that much time and effort into something, the reason that fulfillment is going to demand it is because from an evolutionary standpoint, you needed to have that embedded in your brain, the directive to work hard to accomplish these things. So working hard really is its own reward, dad, something that he used to tell me all the time when I was a kid, and he's absolutely right. It is truly ingrained in us, even though we sometimes fight and don't want to do it. And we also have the impulse to chill and lay on the couch. But if you're not working hard, you will feel a deep sense of unease. All right, so we're going to work hard to gain a set of skills. Now, the set of skills is really about serving the group. So we know that humans are a creature that leverages culture. So, so many other animals are hardwired. And so a horse, when it's born, 20 minutes later, it's doing all the things that a horse can do. But humans are different than that. So we take this long period of gestation, followed by this long infancy. And in all of that, 
we are going through these different phases of development. And around the ages of 11 to 15, you go into this drinking deeply from the culture moment where it's not just about your environment anymore. It's about the actual culture and taking in that information. So you're going to gain a set of skills that matter to you and matter to the group. Okay, and that's the part of culture. So you're working really hard to gain the set of skills that matter to you and the group, something that's exciting to you. You just enjoy doing it. That's very important for fulfillment. And then it allows you to serve not only yourself, but the group. Because we're a social creature, we of course need to be rewarded for doing things for the group, and we're going to be punished for not doing things for the group in our own minds, okay? That's very important. If you're not contributing to the group, you will have this sense of meaninglessness. And this is where meaning and purpose come in. I'm doing something not just for myself, but for other people. It is ingrained in your mind to do that. Okay, so you get this set of skills. Now, this is where passion comes in. The, you want to be developing a set of skills that you're deeply passionate about, but understand passion also is a process. So you start with something you find interesting, you engage with it. If the more you engage with it, the more fascinating it becomes, then we're going to go down the process of gaining actual mastery, doing the boring, difficult, repetitive tasks required to truly master that thing in a way that the group values. Now, when you do that, you get into a passion feedback loop, even though it is boring and difficult at times, as you get better at this thing that matters to the group, the group gives you feedback. And that feedback, when it's positive, feels wonderful. Thank you for whatever your contribution is. Oh my gosh, it really matters. It's amazing. Thank you so much. Which makes you want to do more, which you know to get that feedback more, you're going to need to go get better at that thing. And that's how you get people in these virtuous cycles. You're working really hard to gain a set of skills that gets the group excited about your contributions, which make you feel good about yourself, which make you want to get even better at that thing so that you can contribute even more to the group. And that is fulfillment. There's all this meaning and purpose behind it. You're doing it to serve other people. It's bigger than yourself. And now you get the neurochemical cocktail that you've been looking for by doing that formula. That's fulfillment. Fail to optimize for fulfillment at your own peril. All right, next question. Can you shed some light on how to be still in times of chaos and focus on working towards fulfillment? First of all, I want to acknowledge that chaos can be very difficult to deal with, and it requires a lot of emotional management, and you've got to be able to do many things, quite frankly. It is going to be a whole grab bag of tricks, my friends, for you to get through and get on the other side of that chaos. All right, first things first. Meditation is going to be huge, okay? Just at a physiological level, you've got to get that background radiation down to zero. Now, this can be very difficult when you're in the middle of something and you really feel like you're fighting for your life, but you need to make time for that. This is a physiological process. By getting into that calm and creative state, you're going to find answers that you otherwise wouldn't see. So we need to get out of that panic mode and into calm, creative problem solving. Now, remember, action cures all. So we've got this fulfillment thing that we're chasing. We've got the fulfillment formula. We know exactly what we need to do. We're in the middle of the chaos. And the thing that's going to solve for that, meditation, so we're thinking calmly and clearly, but also having a plan of attack and then going after it. So there's been really cool studies done by Andrew Huberman and other people about how lateral eye movement can actually pull you out of that um, stressed and anxious state because what it's doing is it's mimicking you moving forward. And moving forward on these evolutionary timeframes 
we've been rewarded for that because it means that you're confronting your problem. You're working hard. You're dealing with the saber-toothed tiger, the warring tribe, the just need to go out and hunt, whatever. You're dealing with it. And since nature only has pleasure and pain, if you're dealing with it, nature's going to make sure to give you some pleasure on that. And conversely, if you're trying to hide from it, that's not going to feel great. And you're going to really spiral. It is crazy to me how taking action and getting into problem-solving mode immediately shifts me out of anxiety. It is absolutely profound. So that's going to be a big part of this. And when you're doing that in the context of the fulfillment formula, now you know that this is going to be something you're working really hard to gain that set of skills that serve not only yourself, but other people. So you're thinking about other people. You're thinking about service. And that has a way of really helping you get through the chaos because it's giving you the emotional energy to have the stamina to fight through to get to the other side. And as I think it was Churchill that said, if you're going through hell, keep going. But keep going armed with meaning and purpose around how you're contributing to the group, around getting these skills, around being in problem-solving mode, and around taking action. Because that is going to be the thing that cures all. And then don't forget, sleep hygiene, very important. Meditation, important. Keep your diet right. Don't tell yourself a negative story. Don't allow yourself to loop and defeat. Find people that can elevate you. Find people that will, in a very real skills-based way, help you see the path forward and help you hold on to the only belief that matters, that you can figure this out. What are some action steps I can take right away to train my mind to not go after easy pleasures and happiness and instead seek the gratification that comes from fulfillment? All right. The great news is all you have to do is recognize the truth of the human condition. And the truth of the human condition is that chasing momentary happiness won't fulfill you. That's literally what I wanted to say. And I'm not, because we're talking about fulfillment, I won't use a, a just recursive loop, but that really is true. All of that stuff is so transient. What makes fulfillment interesting is that it is this far more stabilizing neurochemical state. So your brain is constantly checking in with you, making sure on a subconscious level that you're doing the things that you need to do to be of service to the group, to be of service to yourself, to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and your family and your loved ones and your tribe, okay? So there's this subconscious record keeping going on. And that's exactly what's happening. That's why you, you sometimes will feel the unease in your body before consciously you know what's going on. And you feel it, uh, there's something off. You need to take the time to identify what it is to be able to articulate it in a single nice crispy sentence so you can figure out exactly what it is that you need to do to move forward. Okay, now once you understand that that is just the nature of the game, that going after these momentary things will be exactly that. It's going to be momentary. It's going to fade. You're going to have a sense of unease. You're not going to be in the shape that you want emotionally. Once I know, oh, going down that road is not going to leave me in the emotional state that I want to be in, then it's very easy to go, well, this one might be a little bit more difficult. It might take more sustained effort, but it yields these tremendous results. So the example that I always give is um, eating junk food. I love junk food. And truly love it, by the way. It is. It gives me a drug-like high. It is so fun to eat sugary foods. The problem is that, especially as I get older, it hurts 
literally after the fact. My joints will hurt. Uh, I won't sleep as well. I wake up the next day and it's just like, I have like a slight hangover. That's literally what it feels like. And because I know that that's the outcome, it's like, well, on the times where I don't mind and it's like, well, I'm gonna, you know, enjoy this drug-like thing for a minute. I'll sort of walk a fine line, have some fun here, suffer a little tomorrow, but on balance, maybe I come out a little bit ahead on the happiness. But if I try to do it two days in a row, forget it, three days in a row, it really starts to be like a real problem. So even over the holidays now, um, when I let myself off of, you know, the hook with all of my normal disciplines and all of that, even then now I keep myself in check just because I don't like the way that it feels. So once you understand, oh, I can do this thing over here and feel really good, or I can do this thing over here. It's very momentary. It's very transient. It doesn't last. I kind of, you know, I'm not where I want to be. And I begin to ask myself questions like, what am I doing with my life? So just knowing that to me, fulfillment is much longer in duration. It's much more resilient. I can be fulfilled even when things are hard, even when things aren't going my way, even when it's difficult. In fact, the fulfillment I get from contributing to the group is the very thing that inoculates me from the hard times being able to knock me all the way down. Because on those moments where you're just beleaguered and you're getting it from all sides and it just seems like everything is crashing on you at once, in those moments, you're gonna cling to what you're doing to help other people and nature will ensure that that is going to make you feel way, way better. All right, how do you become fulfillment-driven versus achievement-driven when everywhere around you see people and society running for the latter? Okay, one, I want to acknowledge the power of success. Success is amazing, and winning at the game in a way that's recognized by your peers is always going to feel good. So understand that you don't have to be, you know, Mother Teresa in order to um, be worthwhile and to love yourself. It's okay to want some success. And honestly, if we really look at Mother Teresa, I'm betting that to her it really mattered to succeed in a way that was deeply meaningful. And she certainly seemed to be trying to reach as many people as humanly possible. And so if we can look at someone like that and say, well, that was a worthwhile endeavor, then what we're really saying is as long as the way in which you're contributing is meaningful, then that's like the double whammy of you should absolutely feel good about that. So we've got two things. One, it's okay to want to be successful. I want to be successful, even more successful than I've been. I want to scale and touch just an untold number of lives. And I don't feel badly about that. I love that. It makes me want to go out and help more people. Now, I don't think that everybody should pursue scale in the way that I pursue scale. It certainly has its own complications. But if you know that about yourself and you want to play on that level and you're willing to pursue it, knowing you may never get there, right? I may never get where I want to go. But I love striving to play at that scale. So when you are looking at it from that perspective, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It becomes toxic when you're aiming yourself at something that isn't helping you or it's only helping you and it isn't helping other people. And that, again, just going back to this idea of you're a social creature with evolutionary imperatives to help contribute to the group. And when you're not doing that, you will automatically feel a sense of unease, that there's something missing. So I say do both. 
very cool to pursue like the, the big grand rewards, whatever it is that you want, but make sure that you're doing that in the context of something that serves other people as well. If you're doing that and trying to pursue fulfillment at the, the grandest level that makes sense for you and your personality, I say go for it. So you don't need to artificially downplay yourself or try to be small, like go crazy, be bombastic, be big, do your thing, go as hard as you want. Just make sure that it's in service of something that is honorable. That's it. All right. What are ways I can recognize when I am fulfilled, especially when I am still in the middle of my journey? All right. So one, this is about taking time to catalog the things that we're grateful for. Just really stopping to either journal or think through what is it that I'm doing? What's my goal? How am I attempting to contribute to the group? Am I actually contributing to the group? And then you can use David Goggins' idea of the cookie jar where it's like you remember the times where you meaningfully impacted somebody, you did something, you got amazing feedback, it really helped somebody out, it was aligned with you know, what your goal is. Then those are the things that you put into that memory bank. And you pull on those when things are getting hard and you remember, yo, I did this thing. I can do more things. I can push harder, go farther, help more people, whatever the case may be. And so as you think about that and you recognize you're not where you want to be yet, but you're focusing on the ways in which you've already contributed, that's going to give you the energy that you need to keep pushing through. And ultimately, you have to be honest with yourself about whether or not you are fulfilled at this moment because it isn't something that you're gonna be able to talk yourself into because maybe you're not. Maybe you're not feeling your contributions. Maybe you're not doing things in a way that's joyful. I talk about goals need to be two things, exciting and honorable, okay? So if honorable is that it helps not only yourself but other people, don't forget about the exciting part. You've gotta be just amped up. You gotta be doing something that you wanna do, for instance, is it possible that I could help more people by doing something other than building impact theory? It's entirely possible. But impact theory is what I love doing on a daily basis. I love doing content like this. I love the people that I get to meet, the people that I get to interview. I love the idea of building um, film and TV and NFTs. Like all of that stuff for me is absolutely thrilling. I love it. Maybe I shouldn't, but I love it. And because it's so exciting for me, I have handcrafted my life to make the biggest contribution to the tribe, if you will, that I can, but doing things that I love and want to be the best in the world at. So if you're not doing that, then all of this might feel empty, or you might be serving the group in a way that's sort of by rote, instead of, and this is a great example, I'm almost certain this was Toyota. So Toyota was trying to encourage their employees to do um, charity work. And they found that people were going to uh, soup kitchens and helping feed the homeless and it was nice, but the people at Toyota felt like they weren't really leveraging their unique skill set. And this is why I say fulfillment is about working really hard on a set of skills that matter to you and allow you to serve the group. So you go down this that passion loop of getting gaining true mastery of something that gets you positive feedback. So what Toyota's employees ended up doing was going and making the um, soup kitchen more efficient so that they could feed more hungry people faster. 
And that made them feel extraordinarily good. So figuring out why it is exactly that it's coming up for you that you might not be feeling fulfilled. So one, you might not be doing the right things. So making sure that you're following the fulfillment formula. And then two, making sure that you have that meaning and purpose. You know why you're doing what you're doing. You feel connected to the people that you're serving. It's a big deal at Impact Theory. Every team meeting, we go through and read something that somebody from the community has written explaining how impact theory has touched their lives. It's incredibly important to us to reground ourselves around the people that we're actually serving. So that can be an important thing to just take that time. What are you doing that is helping, that's moving the needle? You know, circle around it, write it down, like really focus on that thing and internalize it. And that should help. All right, everybody. Fulfillment is one of the most important things. I'm telling you the punchline of life, the very thing that you were trying to optimize for is very simply fulfillment done in a joyful manner. Fulfillment and joy, fulfillment and joy. That really is the key. It isn't the grand success, so there's nothing wrong with chasing that. It, it isn't accolades, it isn't money, it isn't fame, it's none of those things. It is truly working really hard to gain a set of skills that, that you care about that allow you to serve not only yourself, but other people towards an end that excites you? Well, I think there's a, a through line of change as a thing that's a constant in our lives. There's change that we choose. We've become fed up with the status quo or normal, being okay with being okay. We decide that we're gonna finally create the courageous first steps in making that change a thing that gets us closer to who we're meant to be or the version of what becoming looks like for us. And then there's the change that chooses us <laughs> in that we think we have some control. That illusion is a thing that we can connect to until we wake up one day and there's a diagnosis, there's a job that no longer exists, a relationship that ends. Mm. And in a world where I had as the pillar, one of the biggest pillars of my identity, husband to Rachel, the change choosing me in this, the end of our marriage, was something that I now didn't know who I was in the absence of not being who I'd been. Mm. And in a world where we were also working together, that identity of what I did and what I thought I'd do for the rest of my life was something that in a single swoop was pulled out and now required that I, in having been handed this blank piece of paper, go through the work of trying to fill out what next looked like. Mm. And I say in the book, and I've said it plenty of times, it's both parts exhilarating and terrifying. At the beginning, it's way more terrifying than it is exhilarating. Mm. But that's part of what courage ends up being a required ingredient for turning the terrifying into the exhilarating. Because mm. when you realize, oh, there, there is no control, there's only the way that we respond to the circumstances that life presents or the way that we in choosing change manufacture new events or a new, a new road, a new map that we ultimately end up sailing off of that still because it ends up being different than something we've previously been familiar with or gotten the hang of or have comfort with requires courage to step into it. It's the whole idea of having to lose things first I find really interesting. And I don't know if, I remember when Fight Club came out and the way that it felt and the, the sort of, I don't know, it made me feel more attached to it, but I lived in the building that he, in the beginning he showcases and he describes the building and all. It's, 
I don't know if he intentionally took it from the brochure, but it's so specific to how they marketed that building yeah. that my guess is that he did. Yeah. And so he's describing a building I actually lived in and like all the you know ways about how modernity has sort of trapped us in this thing. And then he blows it up. And so there was a sense of, I don't know, it was a real cultural moment. And you going through a divorce so publicly has that same kind of interesting ring of like, and now let me show you the process of building up. So if Fight Club takes a far darker look at, you know, that, the process of creative destruction, your life and the book specifically is this really interesting take on the beautiful side of creative or the, the creative opportunities that come from destruction. Yeah. Walk me through, like, as things are falling down around you, I'm sure your first instinct is to try to hold it together. When did you first get the sense of maybe actually letting this fall down is the right place to start? It took a while, to be honest, because I initially was very much in this, well, let's do the work to fix it. Can we, is there some way that we can keep this thing that has been put on the table from happening? And it was evident very early on that, oh, this is a decision that has been made. There is no negotiating as it were. And acceptance was a thing that took time for me. Uh, and, and the reality was in part, one of the first casualties in my life was my imagination Whoa. because I, in this thing that I didn't think could happen, having happened, the vision that I'd had for so long of what the rest of my life would look like and who I'd be with and where we'd live and the way that we do work, it being gone made my ability to see what is not even five years from now, what is a year from now? I just, I had a compromised imagination. It was gone. And so- the And you had a sense of that loss. Oh yeah, no, I was acutely aware of this inability for me to forecast anything beyond what was now a survival, survival mode of sorts of, I just gotta get through tomorrow. Like I was in deep grief, just deep grief. And in that sadness of now letting go of what I'd previously thought things might look like, I was trying to find something that I might connect to that would allow me to recultivate or re-spark that imagination. And the place I had to start, to be honest, was really getting intimate with my fear. Because most of why my imagination had been lost was because there was so much fear around trying to figure out something that I'd never contemplated. So that becomes like a screaming voice in your head that stops you from seeing things? Yeah, well, I mean, I ended up having this conversation with fear where I was trying to understand what is it? What are the things that are inside of And the of reason me? you feel the need to have this conversation is it's ever-present and you don't like it? It's ever-present and it is 100% inhibitor from me being able to see anything hope-filled. It's, it's hard for me to see the exhilarating part of the choose-your-own-adventure narrative that I am suggesting I believe exists, but I can't connect to. All right, so sit me down in that moment. So you, so I've known you before divorce, through divorce, after divorce, and there's no doubt that we all sort of present things to the world, but you from the outside, um, you handled it extraordinarily well. And that doesn't mean that you didn't process grief and cry and all that, but um, it's really interesting. I think having read the book, 
I'm going to step back. You are intriguing to me because you don't see yourself the way that I see you. And while there's no doubt that you know yourself better than I know you, the thing that you've had to like fight and claw to earn your own respect around is from the outside so self-evidently impressive about you. So in the book, you're like, I mean, built through courage, like, you know, you got to step outside your comfort zone, but I'm the guy that always gets trapped by my comfort zone. No, you're not. You're the guy that for whatever reason is constantly able to reinvent, reinvent, reinvent. Like when I hear you describe what you did in the corporate world, how many times you took different jobs and just said yes before you knew what was going on. But every time it's hard for you, which makes you, in my opinion, the right person to write the user's manual on how to get through this. So now as we sit down with you in that fear, I want to know how, because most people, they're lost in that forever. Okay. I've known plenty of people, they get divorced and 25 years later, they're still stewing in that same space they were two months after the divorce. You've already made some pretty extraordinary leaps, begun to put things back together. But if you sit me down in that moment of fear where you can't see anything hope-filled, what's the first thing that you grab a hold of that allows you to begin to construct a, a context for how to move forward? The first thing was truly getting to a place of acceptance, right? Like I was in denial that this was even happening. It felt like I was in the upside down, that like the matrix is a thing now. Like, is this the simulation? I've in some ways at the beginning convinced myself that there was the possibility that this wasn't even real. Really? Oh yeah, because it just, it didn't make sense. And then I got to a place of, no, 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 this is real. You have the responsibility to parent these four kids. You have the responsibility to show up for your life. How are you gonna do it? And the thing, the question I started asking was, what did I need to just become the version of who I'd hope to be 90 days from now, right? Like the first thing I had to do was really shrink the window of my forward-looking vision casting where I'd been a person doing five and 10 years here's where I'm going to be. And I could just like a movie playing in my head, describe what it was going to look like. I needed to understand what did I need to do today to get myself just 90 days into the future. And for me, it ended up going through the question of health. How might I in the five dimensions that I've identified as being important for me in health, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, and physical health, How might I have two or three things for each of those dimensions of health every day that might become part of my routine and part of what ends up being my set of habits that will allow me to create just enough inertia from this now standing still, I describe a sailboat in the book that is waiting for wind, right? Like, okay, I got to at least build the sail. I got to put it up so that when the wind starts to come, I'm actually prepared to move forward. And so for me, it was, all right, what do I need in my mental health? Well, I needed to see professional freaking help on the regular. I mean, I was talking to a therapist a couple times a week because I didn't understand why I was thinking what I was thinking, why I was feeling what I was feeling. And that interaction created a little bit of a You didn't understand it or it was erratic? One minute, I can make it. The next minute, no, I'm never going to. Both, both. I didn't understand the way that the voice in my head was being so critical of not having had this thing that was so important work out. 
I'm just an achiever by nature. I've had success in career. I've had success in a whole host of things. And yet I couldn't at the time see that my marriage not working out wasn't a success. My marriage was a success. It just was the end of my marriage in what had been or the end of our relationship in what had been as we've now transitioned into something new. But at the beginning, I saw it as a failure that I somehow had failed and I, and I was really, as I'm sitting with my therapist or having a conversation through podcasts or books with myself, trying to understand what, what could you have done differently or what are you meant to learn from this? And some of that work, yep, would allow me just a little breadcrumb. Now I'm taking one step closer to an answer that over what now is almost two years worth of time had me really come to appreciate I am who I have become not in spite of what happened, but because of what happened. And that as much as I had this bold declaration at the end of 2019, 2020 is gonna be my best year ever. I have like publicly declared that 45 was the year of my life that I was waiting for this best year to happen. And what I couldn't appreciate then that I see so clearly now is that I was not ever going to be the person who could dictate the conditions that would bring my best forward. Right, And so, yeah, if in some ways I brought on some of what ends up happening in 2020, I apologize for the pandemic and anything else I may have been responsible for. I don't think that for real. But I also, <laughs> right, like I, I, I prayed that certain things that happened would never have happened. And I was doing so at the expense of how that cause and effect relationship produced the best. I wouldn't have been brought to my knees in a way that brought me closer to my spiritual walk. I wouldn't have had the way that this divorce created closeness with my kids, the kind of relationship that comes out of it. I wouldn't have spent the kind of time in physical transformation, really. Which your physical transformation is crazy. Well, crazy. No, thank you. But like it is, you know, moving my body and pushing myself to do things physically has been an exercise in showing myself that I can do things that go beyond what I believed myself to be capable of so that I could take that experience in the physical realm and believe it in the mental and emotional realm. Oh, you can also handle things mentally or you can handle things emotionally that go wildly beyond what you believed yourself to be capable of because you now have proof, you have evidence in this other part of your life. Dude, body transformation is the most underutilized mental transformation oh. tool ever. And the number of people that I've seen, whether it's in business, whether it's you know in something like a divorce or your career, whatever, where when you show yourself that you can set an intention, go and lift a progressively heavier weight and your body actually changes, you look different, you feel different, um, and you can actually pick up heavier things, like that, there's something that goes on of like, oh, what if the same thing is happening in my mind? You can't see it yeah. in such a tangible way, but when you go through a physical transformation like that, it really does leave you with something truly profound. Yeah, there is something too. I've described myself as a recovering fixed mindset person, and yet the attribution of growth in a gym or inside of the physical realm was never anything that I would have indicted myself for not being good because I was not already someone who could lift a certain amount of weight. But the ability to connect dots and see, oh yeah, you can continue to grow in this space. You can grow, whether it's muscle or endurance or stamina, recovery, all these things have been things that have changed the way that I think about growth in every aspect of my life, not just the physical realm, which is part of why it's so powerful. 
All right, so you, things are crumbling down around you. We're in grief. We can no longer attach to hope. And we realize, okay, I have these five pillars in my life. And in the book, you have a really great quote that I think is what all this is hanging on, which is the antidote to fear is a plan. And I thought that was brilliant. It's absolutely true. The same idea I sum up by saying that action cures all. If I'm super anxious about something, all I need to do is start dealing with the problem head on, like just go start actually executing against it because it's that, it does that same thing. It puts your brain in a problem solving mode yeah. instead of a just looping over that it is a problem. All right, so we're there. We recognize that the antidote to all of this is gonna be getting a plan. We chunk our life, life up into pieces and we start putting goals in each of those areas. Um, the, the cool thing about the Tyler Durden quote that you have in the book is that it, it has this open-ended question of, if you can now do anything, what's the anything you want to do? So how did you begin to like put that together? The whole vision that you'd had for you know, 45 years is gone. What do you start to piece together and how do you do it? So for me, there were two very, very big things that were somewhat of a departure from who I'd been as a more pragmatic, practical person. I began, even though your introduction of me having been someone who's taken more chances or put myself out of my comfort zone is the greatest compliment and something I probably don't see enough in myself, hey, yeah. I have been in a season of yes, like just radical yes so that if opportunity presents itself for me to do something that I have not previously done that might publicly embarrass me, that I will fail wildly and spectacularly at for the opportunity to fail wildly and spectacularly at, I have just said yes. And Why, I've, when did that become a strategy? In part because of what was the byproduct of the learning of, you know, now that I can do anything, I, in being somewhat lost from who I am now that I'm not who I was, I had to go on something of a fact-finding mission to rediscover who I'm going to be. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, one of the questions that was a provocateur of the conversation around divorce was a simple, what do you like to do in your spare time? <laughs> Which I should be able to answer. And yet there were some codependent things that existed in our relationship. There was, some, there was some stuff that kept me from being as connected to myself. And so the discovery of where passion might exist in my life or where curiosity might exist in my life became, became well, there's only one way that I'm actually gonna get to the bottom of it, and that's by just saying yes to a bunch of stuff. I'm gonna probably eliminate or disqualify a bunch of things that I am not, definitely not <laughs> curious about or definitely don't have passion for, but I have to start by saying yes. So that was the first, that was the first big thing. The, really fast, I wanna tie that to something you say in the book that I thought was really profound. So um, you talk about, you, you have to be very careful about how you frame something. And I forget the exact example you use in the book, but you're like, let me describe the same thing two different ways. Both are true, but one is like, you know, you failed at this thing and, you know, that set you back at work or whatever. But also, this is also true. From that thing, you learned this and that's what ended up giving you the promotion. And it's like, which one of those you want to focus on and tell yourself is really going to determine your future. Tony Robbins has a really great quote where he says, the quality of your questions will determine the quality of your life. And was there a conscious thing around that? Like, I need to 
ask a different question around, okay, I can look at this as everything has fallen apart, or I can look at this as this is now my opportunity to change who I am in a way that I find exciting. It's interesting because it actually ties to what my second thing was going to be, which was this conceit, this belief that good would come from it which is hard to manufacture at the beginning when you're sitting at the bottom of a ditch of- Were you leaning on faith on that or was there something else that faith, triggered that? Faith, yes, but not just like religious faith, but this was like belief that the things that I would need in the journey would present themselves along the way. Because that's just how life works? No, or? because I believe that if you look for things, you find them. And I was at a place where I was desperate to find the evidence that good could still come from this. And so I went on the hunt for it. And when I, even as I'm, you know, Cal Ripken's streak of crying on consecutive days <laughs> in like, uh, you know, like I, it was hard. Only old people get that reference. Well, for the record, I know, but, but great but, reference. You know, like I, I did have plenty of days where just getting out of bed felt like the win. And yet, I'd still start my day with gratitude, like finding the good that was already present despite the conditions that I was in was a way to just hack a little bit of how I might, because of that gratitude practice, go on the hunt for things to be grateful for. And so some of it was just this conceit of think good things are going to come out of this. You will become something because of the post traumatic growth that can come out of the hardest thing you've, that you've ever experienced. And it's, of course, way easier to say that and see that today than it was in real time. But I just had a little thing here, a little thing there, a, a text from a pastor that came every day for the first two months of the experience, 11 really profound words, what small piece of sadness can I hold for you today, right? He wasn't trying to diminish the pain or grief. He wasn't trying to even do anything more than just offer solidarity and some empathy for the fact that this is a shared experience kind of thing. I'll walk alongside you while you do it. But the fact that that showed up every day was just a reminder, some evidence of the things you need are gonna show up when you need them along this journey. I'm out running and a new neighbor has happened to move in down the street I had my head down. I was very emotional that day. I was not interested. Like I got on a plane kind of thing. I don't want to talk to you in the seat next to me. And yet I ran past them. I ended up turning around to come back and introduce myself. And they ended up becoming part therapist, part comedy buddy, part guy who was showing up to barbecue every day when I was struggling to remind myself to eat. And he, they showed up right when I needed them. And so like- What made you turn around? I, to be honest, I don't know. I mean, like it felt, it, it, now it feels more like a miracle. Like, oh wow, I had no concept of what I was turning around for. Mm. I'm not like close necessarily to my neighbors generally. I live in the middle of nowhere, Texas on a you know parcel of land where I can't see who's on either side of my house. And yet, on that day, for whatever reason, that was like, that was the instinct, that was the tug. And there's a lot, a lot of, what I end up writing in the book is about trusting the voice, trusting, you know, whether it's Glennon Doyle's definition of knowing or voice of God or intuition or gut, but like, there've been plenty of times in these last two years 
where there was something that was tugging and that was an intuition that had a sense of what was necessary for me to do that I didn't consciously have an appreciation for. And now that that voice was presenting itself, it was like, okay, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna say yes to this, even though I don't know why. You've got one voice though telling you you're a loser, everything is gone and lost, and another voice telling you to do something that ends up being good for you. How do you differentiate? Well, I mean, I first have to give credit to a therapist that does work in self, right? I, in having lost identity, attempt to find someone who might help me find who I am. And I did this work inside of something called internal family systems where I am self, my voice of inside of my head or my emotions are parts. And the way that I am able to then develop a relationship between self and these parts allows me to not be them. So the first part with the voice is, all right, you got a voice in your head. Some of it's true, some of it's bullshit. Okay, how do you differentiate? Well, first you have to say, I'm not the voice. That voice that's speaking is not me. I am the witness to the voice. In a very untethered soul, Michael Singer kind of way, <laughs> I am not the voice. I'm, I'm, I'm watching the voice, I'm listening to the voice. It's my job then as the listener to do the investigative work of understanding which of the things that are being represented are real. Like how many of them are fact-based, evidence-based? Is there any reason to question the voice? And a lot of the things inside of like why we believe what we believe or why we do the things we do come back to programming that the voice is echoing. And so if we were raised in a patriarchal society or we were raised inside of a certain religious belief or we have parents or family of origin that believe a certain way. That voice often is the echo of something that existed from when we're five years old. And the question that I have to go back and ask is, well, did the people who were the originators of that story have credibility? Like, do they have credibility generally? And oftentimes they do. You believe things usually because they've come from someone of authority that's important in your life, that you love or crave love from, and that you, for whatever reason, have put on a pedestal or respect. But just because someone at some point in your life had credibility doesn't mean that they have credibility on that topic or that there's even relevance necessarily for their opinion that maybe, right, I was born in 75, my parents were good people, they meant well, a thing that they were programming into me when I was five in 1980 may not have practical relative to when it was you know, good then application in 2021. It likely doesn't. Mm. And going back and questioning if that story that was told then is still a credible story today is part of how when you hear the voice and that bullshit side of the voice is chirping, you get to go and ask, where did this voice come from? I'm not the voice, I'm the witness to it. And does it actually have a credible connection to anything that has practical application in my life today? And so utility becomes the guide as you're assessing all these different voices, basically. Yeah, utility, but also, and this will sound crazy, because when it was described to me as a thing to do, I thought it crazy, and then I just started doing it. I actually will name these feelings that I have and invite them to sit at an imaginary table inside of my psyche and have a conversation with them. And it works because you make them the other and not yourself? Yeah. And so as a for example, I have anxiety as a thing that has 
Clark. <laughs> Clark, who is, you know, the opposite of Superman. I was going to say, I have to ask. Of course, no, but yeah, think. Clark, who is the opposite of Superman, is a, a thing, and I'm talking like situational anxiety, not clinical anxiety. Like when I get anxious, I used to try and mute the anxiety. I used to try and push it away. I would become a dick to people, whatever it was. I was not great with anxiety. And now Clark shows up. I get to sit Clark at this table, have this conversation. Clark, for what reason do you believe yourself to be here? And Clark, right, as a part inside of me, believes himself to be serving a helpful role, right? So Clark doesn't realize he's a negative emotion. Clark thinks, ah, I'm here for a reason. And then my job as the observer of Clark having shown up is to sit him down at the table and ask, why, why are you here? And most often Clark shows up in my life because there is something in my life that has enough ambiguity around it that a simple plan, or even in some instances, a more complex plan, but a plan being applied in that ambiguous part of my life would give Clark permission to leave because his job and having drawn my focus to the area is done. He's here as a helper. And so in a crazy way, not that like I celebrate anxious moments or Clark's arrival, I've changed the way I see Clark or anxiety as a negative thing and more as a clue. Oh, this is intel. Information is being presented to me. And if I can sit down and have a conversation with it, I might get to the bottom of why he's here.